Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm here with my friends and compatriots, Barbara Bolin and Daniel Larson, as we navigate the swamp and try to bring some sanity to this crazy town. I've been living and working in DC for two decades and quite used to the cyclical nature of politics and the military industrial complex. It really is a machine. People might say our democracy is broken, that the political culture and norms are going to hell in a handbasket. But I'm here to tell you that the war machinery and all of its attending components in Congress, the think tank community, lobbying, the defense industry, they're all well intact. But we cannot get complacent or inured to the idea that this is somewhat too big to fail. So we'd like to do something fun today at Crashing the War Party. As budget season gets into high gear and the new Biden administration settles in at the levers of power at the Pentagon, we thought it might be useful to present three crazy headlines each that illustrate uh, the, the swampiness of the military industrial complex and reflect deeper systemic problems that Americans should be aware of in order to perhaps mobilize to change things in the future. So with that, I'd like to get started. Uh, Barbara Bolin, do you have anything for us? Sure, I think uh, one of the best examples of this might be a headline that I read recently, which is about the F-35 aircraft. Um, Congress has spent nearly $2 trillion on a plane that can't get off the ground half the time. Um, the Air Force chief of staff recently referred to it as the Ferrari of his um, service. And Lockheed Martin is the private defense contractor that is responsible for fulfilling this contract for the government. Congress has authorized all of this spending on the plane and a new GAO report sums up the concerns with it as well as explaining some of the reasons why it's costing so much money and also why it's not able to fly. <laughs> For one, the estimated costs of maintaining and sustaining the F-35 just keep going up and up. So they're up again from 1.2 trillion in 2018 to 1.27 trillion today. And that's a 70 billion increase in two years. Since 2012, that cost has gone up 160 billion, which is 14%. Spread that out over 66 years, and that's an average of 2.4 billion in added costs per year. And around 400 billion for 2,500 F-35s, a total program cost for the F-35 right now sits at around 1.7 trillion. That's 25.7 billion per year over the next 66 years. And it's also more than 40% of the total annual budget that the State Department and our foreign operations get for this year, 2021. And if you're wondering why this plane is having such trouble getting off the ground, because this seems like sort of an important thing for a plane to be able to do, they're having maintenance issues with the engines. And um, the engines are manufactured by a company called Pratt & Whitney. And 
these engines need repairs and there's backlog. And by 2030, the GAO estimates they're going to face an 800 engine deficit, which is just going to get worse over time by, let's see, the year, they say it'll ground 43% of the F-35 fleet, which is more than 10 times the proportion that's not able to fly today. So in other words, we've paid tens of billions of dollars on this program, and Congress is still authorizing money to continue to fund it because the program is manufactured in states and congressional districts that are peppered all across the country. So it's once again, one of these jobs creating programs. So sadly, this is another project that it doesn't look like anybody's really looking at canceling. Uh, yeah, and the, the F-35 is sort of the, the archetype of, of what's wrong with military spending in this country. Uh, as, as you say, it's, it's massively over cost. It, we're not getting very good return for what we're spending on it. Uh, and it's, it's essentially an unkillable project because it's so big and because it has so many patrons. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that we keep running into whenever we try to reform the military budget. You have so many entrenched interests that are committed to keeping these things alive, even though they don't achieve anything in terms of national security. Uh, it, it really is just a gravy train uh, that they can take to the folks back home and point to the to the factory that they're helping to keep open because they have this contract. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have to laugh when you say achieve something in terms of national security. I mean, it's a little bit hard for a plane that can't fly to achieve anything in terms of national security. Right. Well, and, and we think about the, the way that the F-35 is being used with other countries as a sort of carrot to get them to improve their behavior or to work with us on certain issues and we say oh if, if you do this for us we'll let you have f-35s what a what a lemon why would anybody want this piece of crap uh, pardon my language but really it's, it's just you the do most can important. have a plane that can't fly yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean and, yeah. yeah and i and i i totally agree with you dan and the fact i mean it does fly so i i want to be clear and i think I think that GAO report said it's up to 60% operational, like or <laughs> achieving its operational goals. So, I mean, it does fly, but it well, doesn't it flies, do but the, yeah, the engines, ahead. the engines, so, so they're having an issue with replacing the engines and, and the crews to fix the engines. Right. And as, as it will deteriorate over time, the GAO report is about what's, going to happen to the fleet. Exactly. So what they're talking about though, this is a project that's already decades old and is supposed to be funded for several decades to come. Yeah. You know, these are these yeah. are like centuries long, half a century long projects. It totally and, is. And this is a serious issue if we can't have people that can build the engines and people that can replace the parts are not uh, sustainable. I mean, mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of the aircraft carrier that couldn't launch an aircraft. Uh, that's an issue too. How is that? And that was also an incredibly expensive project. And then why would we even want an aircraft carrier if it can't launch an aircraft? That's the whole point of an aircraft carrier. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and Dan is, entirely correct. 
this is a gravy train for the defense industry because like you said, Barbara, this is a project that is at least 30 years in the making or more in terms of the, the first prototypes. And since then, uh, they've ladled it with all sorts of bells and whistle, whistles and, and technology that really it doesn't need, but sounds really good, but it's very expensive. And it's all make work for the defense industry over the last three decades. And it's become a heavy plane. It's become a complicated plane. And as you see, if it's only 60% or so operational or meeting its goals, that means it's failing a lot of tests. And so I feel like this is great for Lockheed Martin because they've had this contract for so long and they can keep going back to the Navy and the Air Force and saying, we need more of this and we need more of that. But it's not good for the taxpayer. And as Dan pointed out, it does nothing for our national security if we have this marquee plane that is not effective when put into use. So um, yeah, it's it's really a mixed bag, and it is it is the best example we have of a Pentagon uh, boondoggle uh, that keeps keeps on giving. It's also, I think, incredibly frustrating for the service members who have to use or, and work on these planes, and to be just a little bit fair, I suppose, to some de defense contractors. I've often heard them blame members of Congress because they often create sometimes these contradictory um, bills in the sense that they they make the the they make laws that state they want these contracts to go on almost ad infinitum mm -hmm. long past the point of these projects having already been made obsolete by all sorts of private technology so therefore, like like here, these crews, there aren't even crews that can fix this engine anymore. Right. I'm not sure that that's actually the case with this specific engine, but just in general, that has in been general. a problem in the defense yeah. industry. So this is just an ongoing issue, but Congress thinks they're doing the right thing because they know that in their district, there's hundreds or thousands of people that are employed you know, to make X widget for such and yeah. such defense contractor. Yeah, and they're and getting, and they're getting lobbied hard by these uh, companies as well. Okay, let's move on. Dan, what do you got for us for your crazy uh, headline? Yeah, was a, the, the headline isn't all that crazy. The, the headline makes the, the story sound more reasonable than it is. Uh, the headline is next-gen intercontinental ballistic missile interceptor estimated cost, question mark, nearly $18 billion. What the story goes on to tell you is that you're only going to get 30 interceptors for that amount of money. So each one is going to run you almost half a billion. Whoa. Uh, and so you're, you're going to have these incredibly expensive interceptors uh, that only work if you use several of them at the same time. Any, any one uh, interceptor is very likely to fail destroying the target that it's aimed at. Uh, the the Alaska-based uh, missile defense needs four interceptors, it's estimated, to intercept an incoming intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, and so if you only have, they're only going to have actually 20 functioning uh, interceptors, and then they have 10 more for testing. Uh, you're only going to be able to shoot down five incoming missiles if, in fact, you were ever going to need it. And and so and missile defense is, is one of the great boondoggles because it's a technology that isn't proven uh, it, it continually fails its testing, uh, but 
it's essentially uh, unkillable for political reasons because there's this manufactured fear of a rogue state launching a nuke. When common sense tells you that launching a nuke or a few nukes is suicide, so what what rational government would ever do that? So it's it's guarding against a danger that isn't even very likely to happen, uh, and it's costing us an arm and a leg uh, to develop a technology that probably, if it was put to the test, would fail. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, this this idea of missile defense and uh, the actual reality that much of the technology is not untested, but unproven, it has been going on for years. I, I worked on a story with Chuck Spinney, who is a defense military analyst, worked in the Pentagon for many years. And he liked to, he likes to talk about the Star Wars program and right. how the military is actually rigging the tests at the time to make them look, make those that that program look more effective than it actually was. And so you often see the military working hand in glove with the contractors on any specific program to make sure uh, whether it's uh, missile defense or any other program, F-35, you name it, uh, passes their tests. And so they can get to the next stage of the contract and get more money. And it's it's a self-licking ice cream cone as, as, as Chuck liked to, likes to say. And um, it's unfortunate because that means that we're pouring uh, billions, if not trillions of dollars over time into failed programs that are just keeping uh, the defense contractors happy, but yet are not effective for the stated goals. So where we could be working on other programs, other planes, other missile defense systems, you know, getting those spare parts, training those pilots, we're pouring our money into a sieve, essentially. Right. Well, and the, and the worst part about missile defense is not only is it useless for what it's supposed to be used for, but it's actually destabilizing uh, in the context of arms control. Because while it doesn't work, the Russians and the Chinese are afraid that it could work. And they see efforts to build up missile defenses as a way of degrading the, the effectiveness of their arsenals. And so it gives them an incentive to build up their arsenals and to, to move past the limits that are set, uh, for instance, by, by a new start. So their missile defense creates these perverse incentives for other states that are actually making things more dangerous in the world uh, without actually adding anything to our security. And, and one of the things we have to look at in the future with arms control negotiations is being willing to take missile defense away uh, or, or to, to offer concessions on that as a way of showing the Russians and Chinese that we're not trying to uh, destabilize things further. It, is the missile defense that you're referring to here, Lars, and is that one um, specific only for nuclear uh, missiles? Or well, the, is it the, also so, this, so these interceptors would be for ICBMs, yeah. So presumably they would be nuclear. But can it also, is it also capable of intercepting conventional weapons? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, would, it would depend on what kind of warhead they have on the missiles, but it would, I mean, usually if you're launching an ICBM, people are going to assume that it's the worst case, right? So if you're, if you're launching a missile like that, uh, even if it is only conventional, other states are going to interpret it in the worst way, uh, usually. Um, but yeah, it's, it's for ICBMs. I think I have a little bit of a different opinion from you guys. I just, I think that that a missile defense system is a good thing for us to have. I just think that 
it can definitely be a deterrent. And I don't think it's something that would cause another country to build up their weapons. But obviously, how much you spend on that program is a concern if it's way out of proportion and it's money that's being wasted. Even if the defense doesn't work, if other countries believe that it does, it can be a good deterrent, I, uh, I think. Well, but the, but the thing with missile defense is that if it takes so many interceptors just to knock down one missile, it's much cheaper for the adversary to simply build more and outnumber you. Uh, to, to, have, to have an effective missile defense screen uh, of the kind that you would need against a serious arsenal, uh, you'd, you'd have to build hundreds and, I mean, you need thousands of interceptors. And at, at the rate that they're going with the, the expense for these things, uh, they would be completely unaffordable. Uh, it, 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 I mean, I think it, the, the, the danger is that it does incentivize arms races, uh, whether it's meant to do that or not, that, that's, that tends to be how the other side reacts to it. Yeah, I think that the cause-benefit analysis is always what yeah. we lose in this conversation with when we get to the defense industry. I, and I think that's an important point, Barbara. I think whether it's missile defense, uh, planes, or ships even, it seems as though it takes a lot more money to, to, to build these things in America than it does in other countries with no real proof that our stuff is any more effective than the other guys. And so we have to question, are we getting gypped by these defense contractors? If it takes that much more to build a warship than it say it does in Japan or in Italy or in other places, and but yet we consistently have problems with operational testing and whatnot. I, you know, I, I start, I wish we would put more of a spotlight on the defense contractors, the overcharging, the cost plus, um, the 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 sort of um, the 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 behavior that they engage in to make sure that their contractor contracts are longer and more expensive than they need to be, I think that that's a conversation that we absolutely must have. Uh, and in, I think in this arena and in in Congress and among people. I think that there's a lot of fear about having that conversation that the defense contractors take advantage of because they know that if Congress actually highlights these issues, they will be putting a spotlight on potentially our vulnerabilities. The fact that we've wasted so much money on equipment that doesn't work shows our enemies that, hey, you know, all these things don't work. The U.S. has all sorts of military uh, equipment that actually doesn't function. And the defense contractors know that. So essentially this has, and this has been going on for decades and right. it's really- They're sickening. all protecting each other. I mean, this is this is a livelihood. This is an ecosystem that much, much must sustain itself. And so casting any aspersions, any glare of a spotlight on that would put all of that at risk. So I'm gonna to go to the last headline because we're running out of time. This is a headline that I'm bringing in from actually Defense One, uh, which I was kind of surprised because they're pretty much pro uh, defense industry. But Defense One put out this piece on April 28th by Tara Kopp. It's an investigative piece. And she's talking about, it's headlined, Biden nominee for Pentagon weapons buyer under investigation. 
And it talks about a complaint that had been brought against Michael Brown, who was nominated in early April by the White House to be under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. That's a big job. Since 2018, Brown has led the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Unit, or DIU, which is a Silicon Valley headquartered agency that former Defense Secretary Ash Carter established in 2015 during the Obama administration to speed innovations from the private sector to DOD. In a formal complaint to the Pentagon's uh, Inspector General, Bob Igneri, who resigned as DIU's chief financial officer in May 2020, identified a half dozen employees, including himself, who he said had received special treatment, such as having job descriptions specifically tailored to their skill set to eliminate other applicants. But not only that, uh, he also uh, alleges that there was there was money being funneled from one particular program area to pad raises and bonuses for the employees who were getting this special treatment. Uh, he also talks about how they were circumventing uh, rules in which uh, they were supposed to hire technology liaisons uh, in a temporary rotating fashion and under a classification called highly qualified experts or HQEs. And instead of going about this in the proper fashion and bringing in people from the government and people from the private sector, all of these positions were going uh, to a select group of people, uh, you know, uh, allegedly Brown's friends. Yeah. Uh, so basically this, this story is pretty involved and to or narrow it down, it's basically saying that we have an agency that was created to sort of grease the skids on getting more private sector innovation into DOD acquisitions and programs to sort of like speed in innovation. That's what everybody wants. They say, oh, the wheels of the bureauc government bureaucracy turn too slow. The private sector's got all the juice. They got the innovation and the creativity. Let's put these two things together and we can start getting some, we can get start getting some action. And what happens is, is that this guy comes in allegedly, because you know, we don't know how these findings are actually gonna, you know, play out. But he comes in and starts giving all these contracts to his friends at Silicon Valley. And so it says here that the circumvention defeated the purpose of rotating in new leadership and connections at DIU to generate fresh ideas and ties to non-traditional technology. And so basically it, it was counterproductive. I chose this, this piece because I think that for every whistleblower, like Ignari, the guy who worked there and said, hey, listen, I was getting the special treatment. I saw this. For every whistleblower like him, there's thousands of other people who work in the Pentagon and, and see this kind of crap happening all the time. And I know this because of, you know, talking with, with guys who've been there for years, Chuck Spinney is one, Pierre Spray is another one. Uh, people who have been watchdogs have said, this is what, this is the culture. And I guarantee you this guy Ignari has a target on his back professionally now for, for speaking up as a whistleblower and calling, calling out this corruption because I feel like this is part of the culture. 
that we that you know the DOD creates a, a, a new agency and then it is abused by people and used as a slush fund for their friends and it does taxpayers and our national security no good. Absolutely, and well, and of course, it gets wrapped up in in a package saying that this is being done for reasons of efficiency, reasons of speed, uh, trying to to get the best out of the private sector. But but we see this again and again where the military interacts with the private sector. Uh, it doesn't produce efficiency. It doesn't produce better outcomes or innovation. It just produces, as you say, corruption and cronyism. Uh, and, and we see that with uh, the military contractors. We see that with the, the mercenaries that end up doing a lot of the, the work uh, in war zones. Uh, and, uh, and obviously it's happening uh, also here uh, inside the department itself. Yeah, how about those of us who live in the Washington DC area, we're well aware of the literally tons of thousands of people who are contracted to do government jobs, but they don't get any of the government paycheck or protections that government employees are promised or protected with. They, they are allowed and actually forced to do overtime they actually have to work when the federal government is shut down. They're sometimes really treated horribly by their government masters, essentially, but they are not there and they have none of the protections that they're promised, but they're doing the work of a government employee. It's, and for every one government employee, there's three or four of them. It's, uh, it's pretty much a system now that's, Completely without any um, any oversight or any and and it's working very well. If you're a government employee, you have a whole bunch of contractors that work for you, but pretty much just do your job. You can go from nine to five. You get all the government holidays, all the government benefits, the nice four hundred one k, the wonderful retirement plan. Um, when the government shuts down, you don't have to work. You can work from home most of the time, all of those nice things, and you get a whole bunch of people who work for you doing your job. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're very lucky because in our next segment, we have Eli Clifton, who has a who is an investigative journalist who has done tons of great work on, on this issue. Um, so I, I'm so glad that we, we've raised some of these issues here. It just shows us that we have so much more to talk about on Crashing the War Party. Welcome Eli Clifton to the program today. He's an investigative journalist who focuses on money and politics and U.S. foreign policy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He previously reported for the American Independent News Network, Think Progress, and Interpress Service. Eli has been a fellow at the Nation Institute and the Type Media Center. His work has appeared on PBS Frontline's Tehran Bureau, The Intercept, The South China Morning Post, Daily Beast, Slate, Gawker, and foreignpolicy.com. Now, Eli is my colleague, but I have to say he's one of my heroes because he's shown in all of his reporting his commitment to getting at the truth no matter where it takes him, 
which is the mark of a real journalist. His work is brave, principled, and frankly, a fresh a breath of fresh air when compared to the compromised, complicit, and corruptible corporate media fare that dominates the airwaves and mainstream news today. So I'd like to welcome you, Eli, to Crashing the War Party. Thanks so much for having me and for that very, very <laughs> kind introduction. <laughs> well, it's absolutely true, every word of it. Um, I, the reason why we wanted to have you on the show, uh, because of all of your great writing and reporting, uh, this is one of our earlier episodes we just launched and we're very excited. And you really, I mean, your work really fits in with what we're trying to do on the program, which is to expose, you know, the Washington blob, the, the Washington swamp, you know, pick up the rocks and look what's crawling on, around underneath. And I, so in that vein, I wanted to ask the first question here. I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of people during, particularly during the 2016 election, it talked about the Washington swamp. And this theme really resonated um, in a populist manner with Republicans and Democrats and independents. I mean, people get the real visceral sense that there's something wrong in Washington. There's just a lot of cronyism and corruption, um, quid pro quo and you know what have you. But you actually, I mean, you get very down in the weeds in, in this issue. In all of your reporting, what is it about the swamp that maybe the American people don't really know? I mean, when they sense corruption, what what is it in your mind that is the, the most blatant and the most um, destructive source of corruption in Washington today? Well, that's a, that's a heavy question. <laughs> uh, I, I think that the, the thing that, of course, would would strike me, and I think many others, is not the the backroom, you know, hand, briefcase full of cash, uh, which somebody gets busted for with a wiretap, and there's uh, somebody violates the Wire Act, you know, that type of corruption. Um, it's the legal stuff that obviously is the most troubling. And it is kind of striking considering that it wasn't just 2016. I mean, sure, tr Trump did have his rallying cry of drain the swamp, but for decades we've had politicians practically run on their lack of experience in Washington, uh, which when you really think about wanting a well-functioning government is a little bit absurd to me. The idea that, oh, you know, I'm not from Washington. I'm not a part of this. I'm not a part of, what, what is this that you're referring to? In a perfect world, you would want people who who are familiar with, with how government works, with how institutions function, with how bureaucracy works and how policy gets made. But uh, I, I think for quite a while now, there's been that growing distrust about what that process uh, looks like and, and how it operates. I think Trump probably ran on it more explicitly than, than some, but I, I don't think it was actually that much more than plenty of politicians before him. Uh, and again, it goes back to, I, I think the thing that, that shocks me as well as a large portion of the American public is just how uh, in the open, how legal and how brazen the, what I would call corruption is. The idea that, yeah, you can give uh, a lot of money to a politician completely legally, uh, and expect to get something in return. Now, you can't explicitly have that be the case, but the reality is, is that's the case. Um, I think the fact that it goes beyond just the campaign contributions is the thing that, that always irks me the most and the thing that I would love 
the American public and ideally my readers at the bare minimum to, to pay a little more attention to that this isn't just something that Citizens United uh, uh, helped exacerbate. It certainly did. And, and the campaign finance system need, needs dramatic reform. But there's other uh, less easily traceable forms of uh, influence peddling that are happening with probably even greater impact on the policymaking process. And that's what really led me to being fascinated in understanding sort of the role that think tanks have played in shaping the policy debate, specifically when it comes to foreign policy uh, and the ways that many of these think tanks have, have really sort of brushed off questions about transparency, questions about pay for play, questions about uh, undue influence by their donors, and the fact that in many cases, their donors include folks who, who couldn't actually give to politicians, such as foreign countries and their embassies. Yeah, and I'm going to give you another loaded question, or not loaded, but just heavy, heavy duty. And, and maybe if you can answer it, uh, whatever comes to your, to your mind, you know, first. But we're looking at a situation where we're getting out of a war after 20 years of being in Afghanistan. In your work as somebody who is ferreting out the sort of influence peddling in the foreign policy world in Washington, can you explain to listeners why and how we could be mired in a, a war for 20 years and maybe some of the, the dynamics behind that? Wow, that's a big one. Um, I, I think that there's that there's a few key pieces that 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 at least jump out at me, um, and one of those is just the way that foreign policy gets 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 made, which is that it's it's very elite oriented, and and putting aside sort of what those people look like or what their pedigree or background is, I think the more important aspect of it is that it's a small group of people and it's pretty insular. Uh, and that any time that's the case, uh, putting aside sort of questions about identity politics and all of that, anytime you have a small group of people in, in a pretty small area, such as the District of Columbia, uh, who have uh, really get to control a lot of the debate around policy, as well as the implementation of it, uh, it's going to be pretty easy to influence that in ways uh, that, that could be harmful. Uh, moreover, it also, uh, there's a disincentive toward any sort of accountability toward bad policy, toward bad policy making decisions. Uh, and I think that that's just true of broadly the foreign policy establishment and the, and the way that it has made policy. That isn't to say there aren't some really good people there trying to do the right thing, but it's also just a, a dynamic and, and a community that when it's so small, so narrow, uh, it's very easy to, you know, when you have a handful of institutions that are offering jobs to people who will be sort of the government waiting or the shadow government you know, waiting for the next administration, it's pretty easy to, to, to constrain that debate via funding, via who gets hired, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, I think with Afghanistan, what you see is that, yeah, it was it was a combination of people weren't paying that much attention because, again, foreign policy is very, uh, it's, it's not something that a lot, most Americans place very high in where they choose how they vote when you look at polling. It tends to poll pretty low in terms of an issue that they care about. Again, this just helps reinforce that influence that, that a small policymaking group of people in Washington have. Um, and I would also point out that the people that were making the decisions that were offering policy advice from various think tanks were very often the ones that had already helped implement previous policies right. that had sort of laid the groundwork for, for two decades of war. So they were not inclined to being overly critical. Uh, and finally, I, I would point out the fact that 
uh, a lot of the institutions and a lot of the individuals who were perceived as experts, rightfully in many cases, because of the experience they had with the execution of the war in Afghanistan, uh, had at, at various points in their career, and especially now, wound up essentially on the payroll in one form or another of the weapons firms. Uh, via funding of institutions they are on, via board memberships that they had. Um, it seems as if the weapons companies actively sought these people out is the, is the, is the impression I get. Uh, I don't think that, that these folks went out there saying, I want to one day work for Raytheon. Uh, but I do think that, that when they left government and after they had been you know, uh, senior political uh, po policy leaders, after they had been uh, uh, generals who had commanded forces in Afghanistan, that the weapons firms had a funny way of finding them out and, fi and, and getting them involved in their work. Uh, and then when you looked at something like the Afghanistan study report, which, which I, I published an article on, uh, uh, I guess a couple months ago, it, it showed that I think it was was it 13 out of 15 of the of the blue ribbon members of this panel uh, that had been commissioned by Congress uh, had financial ties to the weapons industry, and their policy recommendation was essentially it's probably not the time to withdraw right now. We can't offer you a clear guideline of when or how the United States should withdraw from Afghanistan. Obviously, Biden went in a very different direction, and I, I think we should you know, give him all the credit in the world for that. Uh, but I think that that was highly reflective of not just these 15 people, not just the Afghanistan study, study group itself, but I think it's actually really reflective of the so-called blob that Ben Rhodes refers to. This is a small place. It's a small number of institutions. It's a small number of places that gave you a job. And... Um, you know, that, that that doesn't really uh, incentivize uh, uh, policymaking that's overly critical, especially of past decisions that have been made. I think if anybody's listening, you know, uh, and, they, and they are looking around for a definition of what the blob is, I think that you just said it out straight, Eli. Um, I'm going to transcribe exactly what you just said. <laughs> I'm not going to put it on my wall <laughs> because that, that is the definition of the blob. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it's one of the things that we've been talking about a lot uh, over the last uh, year, Kelly and I, uh, and, and we're going to keep doing that uh, here on the show. Uh, and, and one of the things that we see with that uh, is you, you have, as you say, there are a, a small number of people who are tied into the, the vested interests that want to keep U.S. foreign policy more or less the, the way that it's been going. Uh, uh, heavily militarized, uh, very uh, entangled in foreign conflicts. Uh, and, and always on the lookout for new conflicts. Uh, and, and one of the things we've seen in the last uh, maybe year, year and a half, is this new craze for talking about great power competition. This is a phrase that the, the Trump administration put into the national security strategy, and it has since uh, spread everywhere, uh, you know, like COVID, uh, okay. and ended up uh, sort of taking over uh, our debates about Russia and China policy. Um, how are the big contractors both stoking and feeding off of the great power competition craze? Well, certainly the one I've looked at the most closely is Lockheed Martin, uh, who mm -hmm. are interested in, in acquiring uh, the uh, a company called uh, Aerojet, I believe, which is a uh, rocket ro rocket, manu rocket rocket engine manufacturer. And they uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne is the full name of the of the corporation. It's a four. It will be a four point over a four billion dollar acquisition, um, which doesn't sound like okay. Fine, you know Lockheed Martin obviously makes missiles. They want to acquire a, a, a solid solid fuel rocket motor company. Uh, but it's actually the last of the independent uh, uh, rocket engine manufacturers inside the United States of any of any real size, um, and obviously antitrust regulators 
have some concerns about this because this this is just further consolidation of the the weapons industry in ways that are are not just bad for the economy perhaps but you could even say it's bad for U.S. national security to have the the, the sources of weapons really consolidating into just a handful of companies. And it, it was interesting because I, I listened to the, the last quarterly earnings call by Lockheed Martin, which is public, and they were talking about how basically they thought that that antitrust regulators should should cut them a break on this because of so-called great power competition with China. And what was really shocking is they went even further and said, you know, really to compete with China, we need to have a uh, a defense industry that can that can you know essentially more closely mirror China's. Now, unsurprisingly, China's you know weapons and defense industry it's decidedly vertically integrated. Uh, a lot of it is state owned, and they appear to think that they should get to play by the same rules. Interestingly, while not being state owned, uh, they get to do it for profit and, uh, and and continue to essentially consolidate the industry in ways that are decidedly um, uh, run against sort of the ethos of of having a competitive market here. Um, so I think that, that that's at least one very clear example. Uh, I've heard other earnings calls where defense contractors have been talking about, you know, the the, the NDAA, the defense budget, uh, where they talked about how they expect it to continue to, to sort of be where it is right now. Uh, but the most explicit discussions I've seen are Lockheed Martin really saying great power competition, great power competition. It justifies us being able to uh, engage in practices that um, you know are, are fundamentally anti-competitive, some would say un-American, perhaps bad for U.S. national security in the long run, but uh, fit this, this narrow view that, well, anything goes because we're headed to great power competition with China. Incidentally, it's really I find it disturbing watching the fact that it seems like the defense contractors and the so-called blob uh, has really embraced the great power competition narrative. And what's really striking to me is that that's happened without the pushback I would have expected from the countless vested interests in Washington and in the United States who really do have a lot to lose by a Cold War relationship uh, or confrontation developing with China. You know, where are the business leaders? Where are uh, even people that care about human rights and say, hey, if we just securitize this relationship and make it about uh, saber rattling, it's going to be a lot harder to talk about, um, for instance, uh, uh, forced labor from Xinjiang being used in cotton manufacturing that somehow winds up in U.S. markets. Uh, you're going to lose a lot of credibility and the ability to elevate those conversations. So I think that there's a lot of folks who have a lot to lose here if we continue to sort of barrel down this path of talking about a great power competition with China and needing to sort of check them militarily. And, and it would be nice to see some people pushing back a little bit more. Unfortunately, right now, it seems like the people that are benefiting, such as Lockheed Martin, have sort of dominated that conversation. Right. Well, and, I, and I think we see that in in many issues and not just foreign policy issues where uh, those interests that have uh, the most to gain uh, immediately are the ones that are most focused, the most uh, energetic in, in pushing for a certain kind of policy. Uh, and, and that's certainly been the case here. Uh, and I agree, it's, it's been very dispiriting to see how uh, readily people are shifting into accepting a Cold War with China or something like a Cold War with China without really thinking through the implications. And so we end up uh, talking about uh, possible conflict over Taiwan uh, sort of almost out of the blue uh, this year, when, when there's there's really no consideration to how much that would cost us, how much it would cost each, East Asia, how much it would cost the global economy. Um, and so how, how, how do advocates of restraint go about uh, pushing back on the, the 
expansion of the military budget and this this drive for conflict with China, uh, when there is uh, such broad bipartisan interest in this uh, new hostile uh, sort of relationship. I mean, that's a tough one. I, I I only look to sort of where my own my own visceral leaning goes due to my work as an investigative journalist, and and that's probably my biggest frustration with talking about foreign policy and reporting on it is that it is not talked about as a competitive, contentious policy space the way pretty much any other policy space you can think of, be it you know, social issues like, like abortion or, or, or sort of top, top button issues like taxation, uh, regulatory issues around financial markets or the environment. Um, all of those, everybody understands that there are different views, different interests, and of course there's corrupting influences in all of those, and there's there's special interests, and there's money, and there's uh, large groups of people engaged in, in coalitions and advocacy campaigns on both sides, and, and people get that. Foreign policy has consistently been treated as this special space, where it's a, somehow this notion that it's a space of pure ideas and that everybody kind of is to all talking about U.S. national interests in the same manner, uh, with the same understanding of what that might be. And, uh, and, 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 and there's a, a real aversion toward public disagreement, let alone suggesting that people involved in this debate uh, may have uh, financial interests, may have uh, differing interpretations of U.S. national interests. Uh, and may have uh, maybe influenced by by all sorts of political financial uh, uh, currents in in the debate. All of that is sort of considered uh, beneath the foreign policy space and the debate. And if there's one thing I could change, or the one thing I would love to see change, is to see it just get normalized. You know, can we start talking about foreign policy as a contested space, as a policy space that has a vibrant debate in it? that has a variety of actors who have different interests and ideas. Uh, instead of this, uh, you know, really, uh, uh, it's also boring, but also dangerous blob voice where you see these, these panels where everybody uh, tries to agree. Everybody uh, actively avoids public disagreement. Everybody wants to sort of legitimize one another's position in the debate and one's, and one's institutional role in the debate. And, and I really would like to see this become something which is just, just reflects something a little more normal, a little more like these other policy debates, a little more like American politics. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, this is, for whatever reason, has been sheltered from that. And I, and I think it's really dangerous. And I think the, the folks that that have benefited from this, uh, they've had a lot to gain, and it's come at the expense of there being an actual vibrant policy debate about about what Americans would would like U.S. policy to be abroad. So I wanted to ask you a question about um, a piece you had written recently about new legislation that was introduced um, to uh, require think tanks to have to declare if they've received contributions um, in excess of $50,000 from um, foreign countries. And I wanted you to talk to, talk to uh, you know, our listeners about just how big of a problem this actually is. How, how many um, think tanks are receiving um, these large donations from other countries? Well, that's that is the question, and we don't have an answer. That that's a key part of what this legislation um, is trying to address. Uh, so people don't. Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, when we see like these, you know, how like for instance, when we see like the House Foreign Affairs Committee talking um, on C-SPAN and they're interviewing these different experts on foreign policy, and we see them citing these different studies, and we know that those studies have been funded by think tanks. Are those studies actually being funded by like Saudi Arabia? Is that sort of the end? Is that what is actually happening? Yes. <laughs> uh, in, 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 in some cases, it, it can be. Now, the, the truth and testimony rules, uh, which are really just apply to people testifying before Congress, uh, are supposed to to require some disclosure of that. Now, I think these rules, these rules really could be improved quite a bit. Um, and the easiest way to slip through these rules, which I've seen countless people do, is uh, you, you testify, you're the, 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 everybody identifies you when you testify as uh, an employee of a think tank. Uh, but the really cool thing is when you fill out your truth and testimony form, you just say you're testifying on your own behalf. Uh, and that's the only place where you'll say that you're only testifying on on, on your own. Um, your uh, prepared testimony can even be on, um, as I've seen several times, on the letterhead of the think tank that you work at. Uh, but then you just kind of sidestep it at that key moment and say, "Oh, well, no, you know, now that we're talking about if I may have foreign funders, uh, I'm 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 entirely testifying on my own, and I individually have no foreign funders." So, the issue. and in fact, that, that came up recently with someone from the Atlantic Council, I think, who was it testifying did. on Saudi Arabia. Uh, and they say, oh, well, we don't get Saudi money anyway. But of course, they do get money from the UAE. And they end up, they end up that, of course, that's going to color the way that they think about these things. Right. Since UAE and Saudis have a close relationship. Uh, exactly. But it was, it was that same uh, sort of dodge saying, oh, well, yes, but I'm just speaking for myself, even though I'm speaking on behalf of my institution as well. Oh, sure. Thinking right. for yourself, but you're actually employed by, you're employed by a goal. I mean, these these think tanks are employed by huge amounts of money from Gulf state countries. I mean, you wouldn't even That's have right. a job if that wasn't not the case. Right. Well, and, and that, and that reminds people. us of the other uh, episode with the Atlantic Council recently where uh, all of their uh, Eurasia experts were up in arms uh, about uh, Coke money coming in. Uh, but meanwhile, they're taking Gulf money without any problems. Yeah, that's uh, not a problem, exactly. <laughs> Gulf money with tons of blood on it, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I think that that is that, that this gets to sort of these these questions of, and, and the thing I like about this legislation is that, okay, you can talk about tweaking the truth and testimony rules, and you can, you can try to, to say that, hey, people can't, you know, claim that suddenly they're testifying on their own behalf when they when they work at institutions that do get these types of funds that the truth and testimony forms are trying to get at. Um but what this legislation would do is actually would, would mean that that pretty much all organizations um, all, are all think tanks, and I believe it would probably apply to all 501c3s, is my understanding, which of which most think tanks fall under that designation, would have to disclose uh, uh, funding from foreign political parties and governments over $50,000. The thing that a lot of people don't understand is that 501c3s do not have to disclose their funding, right. any of it, right. Right. period. Yeah. This is a huge misnomer. People say, oh, well, the, there's a 990 disclosure that they have to do. Yeah. That just shows where their money goes to. It doesn't show where their money comes from. from exactly. So think tanks, in, in certainly a lot of the reporting I've done, I've been working under the, I've been getting the impression that they act as very much sort of a shadow lobbying space for various interests and various countries who don't want to have their funding disclosed because there is no mandatory reason 
that that funding will be disclosed. A growing number of think tanks are voluntarily disclosing. Some of them will also then list some funders as anonymous, which I think kind of is a, you know, you're not really doing this in good faith if you're having anonymous funders at that point. Um, and finally, I, I would just point at the fact that I think disclosing that if they really do follow through on disclosing their foreign funding and if this legislation is actually enacted, I, I don't know if it will, um, it, it would start to raise further questions and it would start to gr provide greater transparency about whether think tanks have been acting uh, in good faith and in compliance <laughs> with the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Yes, that's another very good point. Because it would show potentially that, hey, this foreign funding came in. If that money was, you know, if, if any of these people think tanks were acting at direction of the foreign funders, for instance, and one example some attorneys have suggested is that if you take money from a foreign source and you then, uh, and that has any strings attached to it, such as producing a report, doesn't mean that they get to write the report or had any influence on what the report said. But if, if, if there was something that you did because of that funding, you might be acting as an agent of a foreign principal, and you should be disclosing the details of that under the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which has been very loosely enforced by the Justice Department. Yes, I mean, just as one sort of example, for instance, with Rudy Giuliani, who we still don't really know who was funding him and what exactly he was going around doing or who was paying him, but there's a lot of very shady uh foreign countries that he seems to, or foreign characters that he was working for doing who knows what. But part of the reason we don't really know is because of these issues with enforcement and with not really having a window into what was going on. Most Americans would actually want to have a lot more transparency, even with, with American political, uh, political contributions go to, right. um, you know, just with political bundling and all of that. But especially foreign, I mean, I think it would be great if, if this type of legislation could could go forward. So I'm interested to see what happens with this. And I hope that you continue, you know, this reporting continues to happen and we can, we'll definitely follow that closely. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a fascinating piece of legislation. And, and even if it fails, I think the mere fact that this is something that I think people are paying more attention to. There were recently some reforms. The the the, uh, the, the effort right now was, I think, led by Republicans on this legislation. But there were Democrats who led on, on reforming the truth and testimony rules. So I think that there is some bipartisan interest in trying to, to gain a little more transparency into uh, – think tank funding, it, it, not just, it, the interesting thing is that the legislation was very much geared around, around great power competition with China and fear mongering about Chinese influence. Uh, and I think it's kind of interesting that like, hey, this is one where everybody can get what they want out of it. Assuming you're concerned about foreign influence, if your thing is being afraid of Chinese influence, you know, Godspeed. Uh, and, and, if, if, and if your concern is Emirati influence, it's got something for you there also. Uh, this is something that should appeal to anybody who, who, has, the, who has these concerns. Uh, and this is a great way to let's get more of it out in the open. Right. And I, and I, I think the point uh, to make is that if, if you're not worried about foreign influence, just think about it in, in these terms. Do you want some other country or some other government coming in and telling your legislators how to vote, you know, what to vote on, uh, helping to write policy, you know, lobbying on the Hill. I mean, that's what you got to think about it in those practical terms is that's what we're talking about when we talk about foreign influence is influence over our elected officials and uh, the administrative state and sort of having more of a say 
and our laws and legislations than regular Americans do. Because none of us on this call have paid lobbyists up on the Hill, you know, um, interacting <laughs> with lawmakers on our behalf. And that's 99.9% .9 of Americans are not represented in this swamp. And so do you really want, you know, Saudi Arabia to have more of a say? I mean, that's how I look at it. I, 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 in foreign policy. I, think that's, I think that's a great way of looking at it. I think that people don't recognize how little transparency there's been and how little knowledge we have. At the end of last, I guess it was early, I think it was early this year, I wrote an article about the, just looking at House Foreign Affairs Committee witnesses over the past two Congresses, Republican Congress, Democratic Congress. And I looked at, there were 600 and something governmental witnesses, non-governmental witnesses who, who appeared before the, the committee um, over those two Congresses. And like a little over, I think a third were uh, affiliated with think tanks. And what was, then I went and looked at those think tanks. And, and what I found was that I think it was under, under 30%, under 30 of the think tanks that were represented before before the committee uh, fully disclosed their donors. So there was just a massive, massive, massive dark money presence yeah. before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. <laughs> now, maybe a little of that got captured in the truth and testimony forms, but when I looked at those, I didn't see a lot of disclosure there. Uh, so we're only looking essentially at voluntary disclosure by these think tanks, uh, and, and really only under 30% of them uh, actually disclosed all of their top funders. I, I don't expect them to disclose their $5 donors, but above a reasonable amount of money without putting anonymous, uh, you know, $100,000 plus contribution, anonymous. You actually see that. And then they claim, well, look, we've been transparent. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's so wrong. Yeah, it is on so many levels. And I'm, I'm really excited that, you know, A, that we're doing this show because I think, you know, highlighting this kind of stuff is what we want to do. But I'm also uh, encouraged, you know, Eli, by all of your works. I know that this is taking you in all different directions. And I really hope that you'll come back on the show uh, when you do have some, some new research, you know, a new piece to share. We'd love to give you a platform uh, to, to do that. Um, in terms of, you know, finding your work uh, for our listeners, if you, you know, go to the Quincy Institute or even better, responsiblestatecraft.org. Um, and search uh, Eli Clifton, you will come up with um, all of these great pieces and all of the great research that he's been doing on the blob. And thank you, Eli, for, for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And I, I can't wait to come back. Yes. <laughs> you know. Take care. Thanks. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.